Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. in the United Kingdom. Hello and welcome to the 788th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM and that is uh, this is our 11th year on the air and I'm Ben and those unidentified questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal and dad, Paul. And uh, today we bring you a returning guest for updates on some very important subjects. And uh, this is our last chance to promote a very important event at the end of the month. Uh, plus we have uh, to end the end, well, actually pretty much right on time. Right around 1 o'clock is, is when we have to end. But we do have the Celtics coming on after us, so we have to be pretty prompt today. <laughs> because they have the game at 1 o'clock. Uh, so... In the, interest of, in the interest of time today, we will not take any calls. Uh, you can, however, uh, email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for uh, messages, or you can message us on Facebook and uh, hope for the best. <laughs> well, there we are. With us for his seventh appearance on the show over the years is Gary Hesseltine, editor of UFO Truth Magazine. Gary served in the RAF, that's Royal Air Force for you Yanks, uh, police during 1983-1989 before spending 24 years in the British Transport Police. Till 2013, he was a detective constable for 18 years. He investigated crimes and was an advanced interviewer of witnesses and suspects. He also was involved in the London bombings inquiry, uh, interviewing first responding police officers. Uh, while still a serving officer, <coughs> police officer in 2002, Gary launched an unofficial national database for police officers reporting UFO sightings. That's uh, uh, PRUFOS. Uh, policedatabase.co.uk. Uh, Gary can talk about that later. Upon his retirement in 2013, Gary founded the bi-monthly online UFO Truth magazine. In 2010, he was presented with the PRG Disclosure Award, PRG is Paradigm Research Group, and in 2012, the Exopolitics Great Britain Award. Also in 2013, he spoke on behalf of police officers worldwide at the Citizens' Hearings on UFOs at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. His main website, ufotruthmagazine.co.uk. So, Gary Hesseltine, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Uh, you there, Gary? What? Hmm. Let's see what you can do there, Ben. Sure. <laughs> We have uh, a number of questions from listeners today. Uh, we're only going to be able to get to a few of them. Uh, however, um, we will uh, go back over some of the more interesting cases from his files. You know, uh, police and Gary, are you with us? Yes, I'm with you. How are you? Can you hear me? Strange. Anyway, uh, police. Oh, there. Sorry, I had, I had, I had the, uh, the speaker turned down. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. So, okay. Gary, welcome back to Beyond the Paranormal. <laughs> Thank you very much. You can hear me fine. Is that yeah. okay? Yes, finally. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I had, uh, I had uh, one, of the, one of the dials turned in the wrong direction. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, okay. I like a man who admits his mistakes. Well, yes. I just glanced over and I was like, oh, that's weird. This should be patched perfectly. Okay. And then it wasn't. So, so take so, us away, Ben. Yes. So, Gary, so what are the most interesting cases uh, from your files on police encounters with UFOs? Well, I thought I'd talk about kind of uh, three cases that um, I don't usually talk about. Uh, one of them is the very earliest sighting uh, that's recorded, which is from 1901, <laughs> believe it or not. Now, 
obviously 1901 we'll never know for certain what the object was and the the report uh, is you know the officers are long since passed away however what why i include it is because both officers were named P, sergeant john johnson and pc police constable clark the location the time the date 21st of december uh, in a uh, a small town called howarth which is famous uh, for the bronte sisters uh, that's yeah. where they live and uh, what makes it interesting although, although like i say we'll never know is the fact that they're walking around as policemen do early hours at uh, quarter to one in the morning zero zero forty five hours and they're on their beat checking doors to see if they're locked etc when suddenly the whole area is illuminated in a green glow okay and they look up and they see what they describe as a silent cigar shaped object but at an altitude of approximately only 100 to 150 feet initially when seen so we obviously people will immediately think oh this is maybe an early airship that kind of thing and maybe it is but the description of the earliest airships if you remember they would have little gondolas underneath mm. they would have little mortars with a propeller at the back and uh, this at a hundred feet uh, altitude i would have thought the officers would have recognized a balloon for what it was albeit unusual at the time uh, the object was totally silent and that's again another thing what created the green glow uh, which is often uh, attributed to police sightings uh, well several police sightings on the database in the past uh, so that's a, again the common denominator that says this is a little bit of an unusual object doesn't sound like an early airship uh, that made noise uh, at a hundred feet altitude you should be able to recognize what it was and certainly recognize if there was any noise if there was any uh, kind of superstructure underneath carrying humans uh, they didn't report that so i think that's an interesting little case in its own i thought about telling you about the case that involves the most police officers for one particular incident and that occurred on the night of March the 30th, 31st, 1993. And basically that involved at least, and I say at least because there probably are more, at least 24 British police officers, 24, uh, seen from uh, probably at least 14 or 15 geographical locations. The object was tracked effectively moving uh, north uh, towards a southwesterly direction over several British counties. So as it passed over one geographical area, the police officers would be looking out for it. There was also a very famous uh, sighting by two Royal Air Force police dog handlers at uh, RAF Shawbury, uh, RAF Cosford. And then there was an even uh, uh, stranger sighting by the meteorologist, a weatherman, basically, he was based at RAF Shawbury, uh, which is not too far away from where the uh, Air Force police officers were, uh, of a huge, silent, triangular object uh, that was moving across the sky. There, there is some suggestion there may have even been two objects, but basically two bright lights were seen and tracked 
by many, many officers uh, over, over probably a 100 to 200 mile uh, distance, uh, which is pretty unusual. But the amount of corroboration there makes it interesting. And in, a, and, and in, a, in what is a kind of evidential twist, when we should always look towards evidence, uh, this is the one case where the Ministry of Defence later admitted that incident known as the Cosford involved an object, an unknown object, that had penetrated British airspace. So this is clearly not uh, an aircraft uh, or they're lying about something, but it, it apparently wasn't stealth, etc., etc., not experimental aircraft, and they acknowledged uh, later on in writing that uh, it was an unknown object. Yeah, so that's interesting. Now, I, was now, saying, I remember that case because that was my 40th birthday. We all remember our 40th birthday. Uh, of course, of course you do. Yeah, the Cosford incident is, is a very famous incident, uh, uh, which coincidentally and may be absolutely not related at all, but it was three years to the day, to the actual day, March the 30th, March the 31st, to the Belgium waves main sighting where the two mm. F-16s chased the UFO in 1990, so a bit of an odd coincidence, same day, three years so later. That was all because of me. Sorry? All because of my birthday, I'm sure. Uh, well, I think they turned up because of you. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's your fault, Dad. Yeah, right. That's what your mother says half the time. Anyway. So, as far as you know, Gary, uh, are there any official protocols for dealing, you know, with, with um, you know, these, these sort of things? Police-wise, there used to be. But now it's a, it's a uh, it's kind of a black hole now because when the Ministry of Defence in late uh, 2009 suddenly decided to close its UFO reporting desk, if you think of MOD person uh, Nick Pope who was there between 91 and 94, sure. he was at that desk, a single officer desk. Uh, they suddenly stopped after about 50 years, and what had always always happened prior to it closing, was that if you lived near a uh, town, it was usually the police that you called, if you're a member of the public, saw something. If it were, if you lived next to uh, a military base, you'd usually call the military base. And either way, what would happen is that the, uh, the, the person taking the call would ask you over the phone um, to f essentially give the information so that they could fill in a sighting report form, a pro forma which was then either uh, sent in the days of old, before people even know what this word is, telex, which was like an early computer version of a message, an email, uh, that was sent to the Ministry of Defence to this UFO facility. Well, in 2009, they suddenly pulled the plug on that and uh, said it was for cost-cutting grounds, which I don't believe, uh, but... And ironically, at a time when there were a big increase in in uh, British sightings, so that seems a bit strange. Uh, but anyway, uh, essentially, when that closed in 2009, uh, the, I, the, the protocols changed. I tried to write to all of the police forces to say, look, this has happened. Are you aware of it? And they all said no. And I said, well, you're still going to get people reporting sightings you're going to have to deal with them in a professional manner, uh, you need to be aware of this. So they said, oh, that's great, thanks for letting us know. Uh, and uh, 
basically within two weeks, 24 forces, police forces, because they're all separate police forces in the UK, uh, uh, wrote back to me and said, thank you for letting us know this. Uh, we'll take it up our next uh, command meeting. Two of the uh, counties, regional areas, uh, Humberside, which is where I was from, uh, and uh, Suffolk, where the Reynolds and Forest incident occurred, ironically were the two that contacted me straight away and said, we will appoint you as a Spock. And that's not a Star Trek uh, annotation. <laughs> that means single point of contact, which is just police jargon. Uh, and they were going to pass all civilian reports through to me for any follow-up. So I thought this was great. Uh, and I thought uh, that a lot of the other counties would come on board as well. However, that soon was stopped in its tracks when uh, my uh, chief constable uh, had a call, phone call from another chief constable from a different area who basically embarrassed my chief constable by saying, who's this nut you've got working for you who's looking into police officer cases? Uh, and because my new chief constable felt embarrassed, he then instructed my chief superintendent, my boss effectively, to uh, instigate um, disciplinary proceedings against me for bringing the force into disrepute, which was a bit silly because I'd wrote a private letter clearly outlining what I was doing. Uh, my database had been running for several years at that point. I said I was doing it in an off-duty capacity. Uh, but by the by, you can't beat a big organisation. And I eventually, after a year of investigation, uh, got off with a 12-month written warning just for writing to other forces to let them know, wow. which is a bit of a joke, and it will be in my book when it comes out eventually on on my police sign. But, uh, yeah, essentially, but the ironic, there is a, a twist in the tale to that, is the ironic thing is that when I decided to retire in 2013, uh, several years early to, to launch the magazine, UFO Truth magazine, I, uh, I had uh, my farewell... Uh, chat with my area commander who was this same chief superintendent and I'd always got on with him fine and uh, anyway I kind of wondered uh, whether he would say anything about what had happened and guess what when he's talking to me one to one in his office he actually admits to me that he'd had a UFO sighting in uniform when he was a young officer in the force as was the colleague who was with him at the time uh, so I was a little bit hacked off at that really because I, I kind of thought that the chief superintendent should have backed me up a bit more um, with the new chief constable but he was a bit of a bully so I guess he didn't <laughs> I mean, it's kind of just the way it goes I suppose I, I, it kind of begs the question um, I don't know if this is still a thing but I know as of 2008-2009 there was a FEMA regulation um, here in the United States basically on, on, on how to address a, a UFO crash um, it was in it was in the firefighters manual as yes, well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I was yeah. I was curious if there was anything like that in in the you know anything in the UK police force at all. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Although I got an unsubstantiated report, and it is unsubstantiated uh, via an intermediary's wife, a wife of somebody who'd served in what was called the Royal Air Force Regiment. Now uh, I was in the Royal Air Force Police. And the, if you think of the army section, as it were, or the equivalent of the Air Force uh, as a ground soldier, it would be what's called the RAF Regiment. 
and they often did a lot of the training on on weaponry to the RAF police, etc., etc. Now, uh, I was told by the wife of one of these RAF regiment people that indeed he was aware of the UFO phenomena and it was part of their protocols of dealing with an incident uh, should one occur in terms of a crash so there may be something to that but when I asked to talk directly with the husband to fight the ex-fireman uh, the ex-area regiment uh, he refused to do so. He didn't want to go public with it, or even, or even talk about it any further. So whether it was a raw nerve, whether it was a, a just an idle brag, I don't know. But it, it wouldn't surprise me that that we do have protocols. And really, since the closure of the MOD desk in 2009, the whole picture in the UK is extremely fragmented uh, because it all now. Uh, is very much broken down into the way social media deal with it. Uh, before social media, there were RAF clubs, uh, uh, UFO clubs, and societies all around the UK. Uh, most towns would have one. But in uh, the last 20 years, they've dwindled and dwindled. Uh, and with the rise of social media and uh, YouTube channels, Facebook, etc., uh, there are lots of websites out there that now collect the sightings, but they only collect them for themselves, and there's no way of, of checking them. I tried um, several years ago to coordinate an effort to bring everybody together, but the social media aspect and people wanting to get likes, and the more likes you get, the more potential advertising you can get. Uh, nobody wants to do that, so it didn't work. And so basically, in the UK... There is not one place uh, where you can get an accurate figure of how many sightings there are week to week, month to month in the UK. And I'm sure that is why the Ministry of Defence decided to close the desk to create that problem. Uh, that, make, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Well, the protocol in the firefighters' manual disappeared. Uh, yeah, uh, that, they got rid of a problem. Yeah, but like, somebody in the UFO community noticed it and ma made much of it, and, and they, I guess, were sort of embarrassed by it. So, uh, well, of course, as you know, Gary, th there are secret protocols as well as public ones, you know, in the sense yep. that, uh, so that doesn't mean there aren't any, just because they're not in print That's for everyone point. to see. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Gary, um, moving beyond the uh, the notion of police sightings of UFOs, did you have you ever encountered a case where officers uh, had, I suppose, what might be called a close encounter of the third kind, or even a fourth kind? You know, some sort of abduction, that sort of thing. Uh, the, yes, that, the most uh, famous one on the police database is a very famous case in itself, uh, which is the case involving uh, Alan Godfrey. It was one I was aware of uh, historically because it occurred on November the 29th, 1980, and I launched the database in uh, January 2002. And when I did that, uh, because he lived in West Yorkshire, and I lived in West Yorkshire, I thought it was a pretty good idea to try to, to get to him and try to check his story out. So, quick, a long story short, when I launched the database, within months I'd contacted Alan, we got together, we had a lot in common, uh, and on and off over an 18-month period, I researched all of his case. I spoke to all the colleagues that were aware of the case, several of the colleagues who'd had sightings, 
and it led to many other kinds of police sightings that went on the database. Uh, Alan's case, I think, is an outstanding case. Um, and he was... The interesting thing there was that he had all what we would say the classic signs of what we call a modern-day abduction. He had missing time. He had uh, an injury that he couldn't explain. He had uh, encounter laid on some kind of a bed on sort of a craft uh, with small beings that he described as being about three feet high, childlike, uh, that were putting equipment on his legs whilst he's laid on a bed. Um, he described them as lamp heads, bulb heads, which, if you think about it, this is bang at the same time that Communion, Whitley Strider's book, is just coming out. But before, well before, really, uh, the public had caught on to the iconic alien head with the big eyes and the sloping face kind of thing. Now, this is, this is why I think in many ways Alan's case is fairly unique in that it's an early account, but very similar. Um, the bulb head, the lamp head, that's kind of like the big head of the small grey, the size. Uh, and But what was interesting in that sighting is that uh, whilst he's laid on the bed and these smaller creatures, whatever you want to call them, five or six of them are messing around with equipment on his legs, then into the room comes a humanoid figure uh, with a beard, with some kind of school cap and a gown, who doesn't speak to him verbally, but he gets a clear message in his mind to uh, to remain calm. Uh, but what comes from that is that he never really got beyond that, because every time he tried to then, during hypnosis, later hypnosis sessions, to explain further what had gone on, he would get an intense pain, and they would have to take, basically take him off. Uh, effectively, the screen... Uh, was put in there that he was not allowed to describe the equipment or what else happened. Uh, but he was he was uh, hypnotized on four occasions uh, in 1981 uh, over about three months apart. So four occasions, uh, two with two sessions with Professor Blair from Manchester University and two sessions with Prof, uh, Professor Jaffe from Manchester University. Uh, and they did it separately, so it went Blair Jaffe, Blair Jaffe. Uh, the first occasion wasn't on video, uh, but the last three sessions were. Uh, and I am one of the very few people, I think, to have seen all of the three videos, because the guy who owned the videos, who set up those sessions, was a Manchester solicitor called Harry Harris, who was a quite a well-known um, UFO research at that time played a part in the Rendlesham Forest case and several other cases sadly now has dementia and, and, uh, and is in a home so nothing further can be gained but he essentially set up and paid for those sessions and on the first occasion uh, Alan was hooked up to various monitors to his heart uh, his breathing etc and when the questions began to ask about, describe the equipment, describe more detail. He would then get an intense pain and he had to be taken off the equipment. They had to stop the interview. But those latter three sessions were recorded. And one day as part of my research into the case, I went across to where he, Harry Harris was living at that time. So this would be probably be 2003. And on, I think it was a Saturday afternoon. 
I watched all three of the videos back to back, but he would never release them. He would release the odd minute or two for UFO documentaries to TV, etc. But as far as I'm aware, not many people ever got to see those sessions. And all three sessions, in terms of Alan, is entirely consistent. Same stories, same events occur. And his body language uh, under hypnosis is its a bit like... I don't think you could make up these involuntary movements that he did. For example, if you've ever seen the Flintstones and uh, the drive in the car, which is made of wood and rocks, rock wheels, yeah. uh, they stop by using their feet kind of thing. Uh, and he does that at one point. Uh, and it's just so unexpected. You know, looking at someone who was trained as an advanced interviewer of suspects and witnesses to look in terms of psychology, body language, non-verbal communication, uh, he did things that said to be that this was very real, that this was not made up. And uh, I always say that, you know, people said, do you believe Alan Godfrey? And I say, well, put it this way, if he's lying, he deserves an Oscar. Yes, I do believe him, and it's an excellent case. And he's widely regarded as, as Britain's first confirmed uh, abduction case scenario okay well we're going to take our break now uh you're listening to behind the paranormal with paul and ben eno on woon 1240 am and and uh, 99.3 fm in new england's beautiful blackstone river valley with our fascinating guest gary heseltine we'll be right back hello this is manny brando and this is virginia Together, we bring you the Manny Brando Show every Sunday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Excuse me, can I say a few words? Forget, you already said too much. Oh, no, not again. Owen Radio, Owen Worldwide, Owen Radio. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM. Uh, we'll continue our conversation with Gary Hasseltine. And Gary, uh, your uh, answer has led uh, rather beautifully into uh, a, um, a question from a very faithful uh, listener in South America, Peter. And... Uh, Ben is busy, uh, so I'll begin. Uh, now, this goes right into the Alan Godfrey UFO abduction, uh, and I, I'm not familiar with the details of this case. I've heard of the basics, and you've just filled this in somewhat, but uh, did, this is from Peter, did Gary ask the aliens questions? I mean, is it presumably during the hypnotism? Is, is, that, uh, is, that, what, is that a valid question? Well, there was, there was certainly, other than the question other than the telepathic message, stay calm, to Alan when he was in the room and laid on this bed, um, no other questions were able to be obtained because it would cause an intense pain to Alan when he tried to talk about what, what was being said to him. So uh, as far as I'm aware, nothing really came from that. Okay, uh, we're going to just uh, sort of digress here a little bit. Uh, our apologies, Gary. We have, uh, is it Ali from the X-Files X-Filers Convention on the line. We, this is our last live show before the event, so we wanted to just take a few minutes with apologies to our guest to promote this event. So, um, Allie, welcome to WOON. Hi, how you doing? Well, better than nothing. Um, please, <laughs> uh, tell, us, uh, tell us what's cooking. Uh, we're looking forward to it. 
Yes, uh, it, uh, it's coming up. It's the last weekend in April at the Crown Plaza in Warwick, Rhode Island. And uh, it's a fan-led convention, um, a place to discuss and talk about and educate on all things X-Files, paranormal, UFOs, abductions, Bigfoot, <laughs> um, uh, paranormal investigation. Uh, it has a variety of topics, and we have uh, we have over 15 speakers um, who are knowledgeable about all their different topics. They're authors, lecturers, researchers. So it's going to be exciting. There's a little bit for everybody. Well, sounds good. Um, now, now Ben will be there for part of the time, but he's got, he's got a commitment yes. on Saturday. I'll, I'll be speaking on Saturday right. at 4 p.m. on uh, Behind the Paranormal, or what's really behind the paranormal. I think people will hopefully find that interesting. And just about everybody who's speaking has been on this show at one point or another, uh, and, and Allie's right, it's going to be a great lineup. So uh, tell us again the times and the place. Sure. It's at the Crown Plaza in uh, Warwick, Rhode Island. It starts... Friday, April 26th at 8 o'clock in the morning uh, till 11 o'clock at night. Saturday, 8 o'clock to 11 p.m. And Sunday will be 8 o'clock to 9 to 5 p.m. Okay, and the website? Uh, xfilersunited.com. So x-f-i-l-e-r-i-s-united.com. Very good. Well, maybe Gary can't make it because he's in the UK, but hopefully we'll see as many people as possible. <laughs> well, he there. would be he would be a great guest to have if we have this as an annual event. That well, next year we'll great. send our Gulf Stream over over for you, Gary. Okay, <laughs> very good. Thank you so much, Allie. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. bye. Okay, very good. X-Filers Convention, that, that'll be great. Uh, okay, so let's uh, continue. Uh, we have more questions from Peter. Ben, maybe you can. Take them one at a time. So since we kind of just mentioned Alan Godfrey here, so we might sure. as well, you know, hop right into that one. Um, did the main alien have uh, a conversation with the smaller aliens? And did the aliens reveal their origin and motives? And does Alan continue to have experiences? Uh, first part of the question, no. Not that we're aware of. And the second part is that uh, whilst he had other UFO-related events, he never had a close encounter of the third kind again. Hmm, interesting. Okay. So again, so then there's, there's a myriad of questions, so we'll just move on to the next one. Did Peter, he, Peter's a curious guy down there in uh, Colombia. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, do the phenomena of alien uh, implants exist in the UK, and uh, do uh, are, are there any police cases that involve implants? I'm not aware of any police cases that involve implants, uh, and I'm not aware of any uh, implants that have been removed, like... Uh, Roger Lear had done in in the US. Um, I'm not aware of any UK uh, surgeries that have occurred with implants. Although I I would guess that there are cases, but I'm not aware of any, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, it would seem unlikely that they would uh, abide by national borders. You know. Co- well, correct. That's what I'm saying. I I would think that there are, and I've heard people uh, supposedly say that. Oh, yeah, I've got an implant, but unless you've got x-rays to back it up and uh, unless they're retrieved through surgery etc under the right conditions then a lot of people talk and there's nothing confirmed if you see what i mean mm-hmm. okay what do we have next there ben and finally actually i don't think i've 
I don't. I don't think we've ever asked this question on the show before. And I, I don't well, think that's, it's, a, I don't, I don't, that's I don't, unusual. I'm trying to remember, and I, I'm just. I might just be blanking. Um, so, his question is: uh, Does the MIB phenomena exist in the UK, and are there any recent cases? Uh, MIB <laughs> being men in black, for those who don't know. Um, I'm not aware of men in black as in the archetypal description but in many ways there are a lot of cases historically especially uh, uh, around certain well-known cases where people in pairs turn up wearing suits who then tell the people uh, the potential witnesses to keep quiet Uh, and this can be borne out in a police environment where um, I know of several cases where police officers would report something, they'd be told the next day to report to their headquarters, they'd then get interviewed by people in suits, who were probably Ministry of Defence, to be fair, possibly Air Force, but in, in, in plain suits, who would basically then say to them, you're never to mention this again. So if we're talking about men in black in the sense of people trying to silence witnesses, then yes, if we're talking about the kind of Nick Redfern think of men in black as in the film men in black then that's harder to determine but it wouldn't surprise me i'm not aware of any uk photographs of any men in black uh, or a legitimate photographs put it that way uh, but there are certainly many incidents and a lot involving police and military where officials or people in plain clothes turn up who basically tell them not to mention this again which is pretty ludicrous uh, for their association <laughs> that there's nothing going on to the subject. Well, you know, I, the, the best way, and maybe this is from my theological background, but, you know, the best way to, to get somebody um, to talk about something is to tell them not to talk about it. You know, I'm thinking of, there are things in the Gospels where Jesus uh, supposedly said to people, don't uh, don't tell anybody about this, and of course that's the best way to get them to talk, to, you know, maybe to spread the word, <laughs> I don't know. But um, in any case, uh, there might be some psychology involved here. But let's move on to an inter- in a subject I'm not familiar with at all. I don't know about Ben, but the uh, but you mentioned it, Gary, that a, a disclosure initiative by the Chinese. What's that about? Uh, I can't say too much because it, it's still in its very early development stages. But essentially, in uh, October 2018, I got a uh, I attended a meeting with a joint meeting with Russians and Chinese in Moscow. Uh, And uh, along with uh, Don Schmidt, Roberto Panotti from Italy, there was nine original delegates uh, that went there to meet with the head of this uh, Chinese delegation. Uh, And the idea is basically to try to create a United Nations style forum of at least 30 nations and you need 30 initially uh, nations on board 30 national delegates to then go to the United Nations to be recognised as a world body so we're in that process of trying to get that done we're looking for a clarification meeting to firm up a lot more because we've got lots of questions ourselves Uh, that should have tentatively happened in February but we got a message saying that there wasn't the time for it until around May, June time. So this is what we're looking to get sorted out now. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I've been heavily involved in trying to 
in a sense, recruit uh, many of those 30 countries, and we're well on route to getting all the 30. Very interesting. I will be interested in hearing more about that. One sidebar to that, Gary, is something that comes up uh, when we are on panels at UFO conventions uh, and the question of disclosure comes up, and everybody said, "Oh, yeah, well, you know," and, and some of the big names we all, we all know around the panels too, and they'll say, "Well, you know, uh, we're, we're sure this is coming, and there's signs of this, that, and the other." But I'm, I'm, I guess the the one who reigns on the parade. I'll say, you know, who here believes what the government says? And there are all kinds of shaking heads in the audience, and hands go up, and this sort of thing. Um, not to be cynical, but. Um, I, I just don't think that if there is quote-unquote disclosure, which, which for those who don't know is the idea that the government will tell what it knows or a government will tell what it knows about the UFO uh, matter, uh, alien life on Earth and this sort of thing. Uh, I, in my personal opinion, I think it's naive to expect the truth or at least the whole truth from governments. And uh, I think it's... Um, if information is released, it might not be accurate, it might not be true, or it might be at least not the whole truth. What say you on that, Gary? No, I think I broadly agree with that. Uh, governments have lied about this uh, reality for 70-odd years, so what makes you think that they're going to suddenly reveal all now? How, that said, I actually do think that whatever your thoughts are on uh, ATIP, uh, Luis Elizondo, the December uh, 16th admissions 2017 that there were indeed objects flying around that are way beyond anything in the American airspace technologically I think is a kind of a disclosure with a small b hmm. uh, because it was supposedly from uh, the head of that Pentagon program between 2007 and 2012 sure. Luis Alejandro. so that appeared to have legitimacy um, I know that, like John Greenwald, is maybe getting stonewalled a bit by the ATIP and Luis Elizondo, so I'm curious to see why that is, because obviously I, I value what John says on this issue, because he's a very good researcher with the Black Vault, etc., um, and getting documentation. So I think that's we need to be very careful, but the Luis Elizondo information seems to be uh, if that were true that he was the head between 2007-2012 does appear to be a moment that everybody can refer back to because we'd kind of like known that people were lying for a long time in government that was done without any senate or congress oversight it was done in secret special access program it, it kind of indicates that there may well be many others that are maybe still going on but they're secret and we'll never know unless they decide to come forward. But I think they, I think it's a combination of things. I do think we are moving towards disclosure because of the way technology is moving at a pace and the way technology uh, can record things quicker and faster. We all walk around now with smartphones, uh, with HD cameras that are getting even better and better. So sooner or later we are going to capture something that's going to be a lot more definitive, I think. Mm. But I also think that if you look at the uh, details that's emerging about the Nimitz encounter, the Tic Tac, uh, and Dave Beatty's great animation for that, which is superb, if you watch that, I fail to see how anybody could say that that's kind of a man-made event. Uh, I think that's extremely important, and more of the 
crews from the uh, the Nimitz and the other craft, uh, the other uh, ships that were in the area were coming forward. So that's an ongoing major case in development. Could be a, a, a well, it is a stellar case, but it, it could even get a lot more as more witnesses come on board. So I think you've got officialdom reluctant to do anything, but I think they realise that. Uh, the time is getting closer where they cannot legitimately keep it secret for much longer. So I think they're probably going to be forced into saying, well, actually, we did it and we tried not to do it, uh, not to alarm you, and, th and they're going to come clean. It's a question of who comes clean. America have been the most secretive government in the world on UFOs, so realistically, uh, I know that Steve Bassett would say they have to get in quick, to do damage limitation because if it comes out that America have lied which I believe they have uh, and have led this uh, secrecy that's run over Europe and the rest of the world then there's going to be eventually some kind of uh, backlash to that secrecy for being so long I think it was legitimate up to the end of the Cold War but I think at that point there 1991 and beyond they should have come clean and, and said we were doing it for your own reasons. Now we have to tell you. Uh, the other thing that I think is important, that there could also be a trigger event, whether UFOs definitively want to tell us or we have a breakthrough on a major case. I'm working on Capel Green and there's a lot of uh, new information that I've assembled over the course of 18 months researching the Reynolds and Forest incident. There will be far more information coming out facts, absolute facts, than has ever been revealed to the public before. I think that the mainstream media have been very, very complicit. 60-odd uh, documentaries about uh, Reynoldsham over the years, but none have given all of the facts to the public. And the obvious question is why? And I think the answer is because they don't want people to realise what really went on there. And Capel Green will address that. Uh, and there are lots of witnesses, lots of incidents, perhaps 15 different UFO events over several days. 15. So how it can be a flying lighthouse, I'll never know. <laughs> how it can be a team of formation rabbits making triangular depressions in the ground to the same depth and size, I'll never know. But we have to go beyond this. And that is only being allowed to get into consciousness of people over 39 years now, into the 39th year since they've occurred, by the media being complicit and not telling you, well, because Capel Green's an independent documentary with no TV bias, no money bias, no UFO bias in terms of TV saying, oh, you can't say that, for the first time, we're going to reveal everything or as much as we can into two hours about Reynoldson that you're not aware of uh, and leave it out there for the public to decide. It's there to give you information. Uh, and as the researcher and co-writer, I've said this on many, many a show, all I'm trying to do is get the truth out there. And that's all I will ever try to do. Okay. Well, we'll give you a chance to talk about that in a minute. But, but before we leave the subject of disclosure, I want, there's just one point I wanted to make, and I'm sure you'll, you'll agree with me here, Gary. Uh, having been involved um, on a very minor level in the U.S. Um, military uh, and, and, you know, some little bit of intelligence training here and there uh, for uh, something other than UFOs, um, I have to make the point that, that it's, it's very difficult for, and you're right, Gary, the, the U.S. government is not only uh, very secretive, it's, it's, it's enormous. Uh, there are many competing agencies 
uh, and each of which may have a bit of information about this or that, uh, but they'll want to, they compete with other agencies uh, on, on any kind of release of information and this sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, and that's the, it's a matter of turf, as, as we would say. So um, who has the, who would, who would do any disclosure? Who has all the information that they might want to disclose? Who would make up the lies that they might want to uh, disclose is is, uh, is is an open question. So the whole process is not quite as easy as it may seem. You know, so I just wanted to make that point. What, having anything, any point on that, Gary, that you'd like to make? Yeah, it's exactly, uh, it's going to, wh- however it comes out, it's going to be messy. Because yeah. there's, there's clearly been a lot of lies told by a lot of people about the reality of what's going on. I genuinely believe that. I do believe that the evidence there circumstantially, especially from military pilots from all around the world, the great cases that we have, prove it alone just through pilot encounters uh, with clearly non-terrestrial objects. Now, you could argue, well, they might be interdimensional, multidimensional, all those kind of things, which are now, because of quantum mechanics, do give rise to the fact that there could be multiple universes, that we can skip from one dimension into another dimension. But all I'm saying is that a proportion, and if you look at the abduction phenomena worldwide and the commonalities, similarities described all around the world, even in third world countries, without access to TV, radio, newspaper, even in third world area, they still describe the same things. So that says to me that there is definitely an abduction side involving a non-human presence. There may well be a lot more going on, but there's definitely a side of that. So I am with the side, a bit like Stanton Friedman, that's saying there are a proportion that, to me, would point to very structured machines of a type. Maybe they're living machines, Mm. but they're to all intents and purposes, machines from a non-human element. Okay. And just very, before we get into your website and the film and et cetera, could you just tell us very briefly about your own UFO experience? I've had several sightings, but it, 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 it's none, none that are fantastic like people have. Uh, but my childhood sighting that kicked off my interest was very briefly, I was walking my then-girlfriend home, in uh, Lincolnshire, which is a county in England where I'm from, uh, and I was walking her home, and we had to uh, go along a long, narrow footpath uh, that uh, on one side there was like a gardening area. In, in, in the UK, we call it allotments where people grow their own vegetables. And then on the other side were my high school football fields. Uh, there was no street lamps at that time. In the distances, we walked along this long path which was probably a quarter of a mile long, um, we could see housing in the distance. Suddenly, we see a bright white light against a backdrop backdrop of summer stars, no noise whatsoever, just a single bright white light object, bigger than the background stars, and as it passed in front of us, right to left at a 60-degree angle, no sooner it went past us, so we were then behind it, the whole electrical power in the housing estate in front behind the object's flight path went off if you think of the scene in close encounters where early on in the film he's looking down on the hill and the grid of the town goes off bit by bit mm. bit like that because the object then moved further there was a second power cut 
I had my bicycle with my at the time. So her, uh, the girlfriend uh, lived close to the end of this alleyway. I dropped her at her house. I then rode back very fast along the same alleyway back to my home, which was maybe a mile and a quarter away. As I got close to my home, uh, there was a there was a bend in the road to the left, and I could see from total darkness where I was riding that on this bend to the left, the power was on ahead of that. I got to that bend, I looked over my right shoulder, and I managed to get ahead of this slow-moving silent light. I went round two corners, dropped my bike outside the house, I rushed into my uh, into the living room and said to my parents, who were having a cup of tea, as English people do at about 8, 9 o'clock at night, <laughs> come outside, uh, there's this strange light, I think there's going to be a power cut. They just looked at me bemused as they would, they didn't get up, so I ran through the hall, ran through the kitchen, out into my back garden, turned around to look back at my house, just in time to see the object coming over my rooftop, a bit higher altitude now, and I don't know why I did it, but I put my hand up at the bottom of the garden like I was answering a question in class, straight up like I'm answering a question, miss, and as soon as the object went past my arm, and therefore I was then behind it, the whole area was plunged into a power cut, all power went out. Now, how could I predict a power cut? That's ridiculous. So that said to me that I've been moved to a second geographical position that that light, whatever it was, had interacted with a power grid because I could not predict to the very second that there's going to be a power cut. It's ridiculous. So that's where my interest stemmed from. Uh, while I was in the police, I had a couple of uh, on-duty sightings, off-duty sightings. Uh, if you've ever seen anything, you tend to look up at the sky more. And so I do that. So if on a nice night the stars are out, I'll be out there in the garden looking up. Uh, and I saw a triangular formation that then did a, uh, that stayed in perfect formation that then banked away to the left. Well, uh, for a long time I thought it was possibly a satellite formation, but a triangular formation, silent, cannot do a left turn uh, in orbit like that, as it were. So yeah. it's not that. We have about a minute uh, left, Gary. Uh, so, again, tell us about your, your website, uh, UFO Truth Magazine, and the film, when it will be available. Right, uh, UFO Truth Magazine is what I retired to do in uh, March of, 2000, uh, of 2013. It's now bi-monthly. Every two months, 96 pages, features articles uh, by top researchers from around the world. Um, I want to try to create warm English-language uh, publications it were that features the best articles from people all around the world who are English speaking uh, Careful Green is the documentary that's going to be about Rendlesham Forest, it's called Careful Green uh, The Truth About Rendlesham Forest uh, it's now close, it's in post production I suspect it's going to be July, August time when it comes out uh, we're well into the post production phase, well over 50 interviews uh, a mammoth project that kicked off small, that then grew and grew. The amount of information that I have uh, gathered over this research period of the last 18 months uh, is surprised me. A lot of new and a lot of old information. Uh, and 
it's gonna and my pledge uh, to you is to give you just the facts and let other people see but uh, for the first time an independent production is going to give you more information on Rendlesham than has ever been given before okay. uh, you here that's there's a lot of smoke and screen that's all I'll say uh, the website for Capel Green of which there are four trailers is www.capelgreen.co.uk Okay. We're out of time, but fair enough. Uh, Gary, thanks for a great show, and we'll be in touch. All right. Thanks very much, Ben. Okay. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Okay. uh, Stay tuned immediately after the show for Game 1 of the NBA playoffs from TD Garden in Boston with our beloved Celtics versus the Indiana Pacers. And for those of you who actually listen to the radio at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'll be on Coast to Coast AM with George Nuri in the wee hours of Tuesday morning. That's 3 to 5 a.m. Uh, that's midnight to 2 on the West Coast and 8 to 10 a.m. in the U.K. To make it appropriately confusing for tax day in the U.S., this is actually their Monday, April 15th show, coasttocoastam.com. And a week from Tuesday on April 23rd, my wedding anniversary, at 1 p.m., my dad will be uh, back at the Town of Prospect Senior Center in Connecticut for a presentation on our weirdest cases in Connecticut over the years. And it is open to the public. You can uh, find more information at uh, townandprospect.org, uh, or you can call 203-758-5300. And after that comes the X-Filers United 2019 convention set for April 26th through the 28th at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Warwick, Rhode Island, and this event covers all areas of the paranormal, uh, UFOs, ghost phenomena, cryptids, and more. Uh, along with us, speakers will include our popular guest co-host Shane Searway, filmmaker Alexander Petikoff, UFO researcher and experiencer Tom Reed. Uh, there is going, or sorry, actually that that actually does include uh, uh, Tom Reed, but also Mike Stevens as well, along with America's youngest recognized cryptid expert Colin Schneider, famous medium Gary McKinstry, and author Susan Brunell, and a number of other big names and uh, we'll give you more details as they firm up uh, the website is xfilersunited.com and events later this year will include appearances at Nashua New Hampshire Nashua New Hampshire Public Library in August Book Lovers Gourmet in Webster Massachusetts in September along with uh, the Exeter UFO Festival and the Greater New England UFO Conference uh, my next book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God, is now available for pre-order on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and other on- online retailers. It has an official release date of August 28th. That's when the book should be in stores. But the official release event will take place with our good friends at the Toadstool Bookshop in Keene, New Hampshire, on Saturday, September 21st, beginning at 2 p.m. Uh, we'll provide more information as we go. And don't uh, forget about our website, BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, along with all of our charities that are listed on there. And for the next two weeks, because of Western and Eastern Easters, uh, we will bring you replays of our two great shows from December, The Hudson Valley UFO Flap with Linda Zimmerman and Paranormal Parasites with Nick Redfern. And that's about all the time that we have, and uh, we will see you behind the paranormal. Amen to that. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.